couple of years ago, I was um, talking with my kids. They were into Thomas the Train. Anybody have kids or grandkids into that? Yeah. And they had a friend over who really liked the trains as well, and they were fighting over the trains. Kid, kids will do that, right? And, and I'm trying at the time to instill in their little hearts and minds the idea that everything we have belongs to God. We just get to use the stuff. Money belongs to God. Toys belong to God. And one of their friends hears me say that at nauseam. I would ask the question rhetorically or not so rhetorically, Clark, Isaac, who do the trains belong to when they would fight? <sighs> the trains belong to God, Dad. Okay, so we need to share those. Well, they had a little friend over at the time. He heard that a few times. And as I'm walking away up the stairs, I hear their little friend say, hurry. And he, he grabs all the trains in a pile. He said, let's get these before God takes them. <laughs> That's kind of how it is with kids. But, you know, big kids are like that too. And, and at Mercy Road Church, we are trying to be people who remember that God owns it all. And we are meant to share it. And, uh, you know, if you were here last week, Pastor Chad did a wonderful job talking about sex. And so, you know, in a culture that is largely Scandinavian, doesn't like awkward moments, why not just follow that with a sermon on money the next Sunday? That makes a lot of sense, right? We're in a series called Guardrails. Guardrail is right behind me. Uh, the pulpit is made of a guardrail. And, and just by way of review, what is a guardrail? It's a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. On the road, we're super grateful for guardrails uh, because, you know, they keep us from flying off a cliff and dying. And if you bump into a guardrail, that, that's a little bit of a bummer because maybe you, you lose some paint and you need a repair shop. But more often than not, you don't have to go to the hospital and you don't die if you hit a guardrail. That's why we put them in the safe zone and, and they infringe a little bit of our freedom, but it's worth it. And so guardrails, metaphorically speaking, are a personal standard. It's a standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience for us. And I'm not telling you what your guardrail should be, but I need to be really honest with my own life because I need to take responsibility for my life, knowing my past, my present, my future hopes and dreams, the call that God has on my life, my hurts, my habits, my hangups, my proclivities, what personal standards of behavior should I have so that I can stay on the road, the calling that God has for me? So when we bump into these guardrails, it should light up our conscience. And we've talked about sexual guardrails and friendship guardrails and guardrails that relate to all areas of life. And we would be unwise to leave out of the conversation financial guardrails. That's what we're talking about today. Money matters Money is relevant in all of our lives. I'd like us to start, though, with a question. Do you have money? Or does your money have you? Do you own stuff? Or does your stuff actually own you? And that's a question we'll come back to. It's a hard question to, to ask ourselves because sometimes we don't like to hear the answer. And, and if you are the type of person who really has a lot of baggage around giving and talks at church about money because you've seen hypocrisy or manipulation, um, know that you're welcome here and this isn't going to hurt. This is going to be a biblical sermon that is presented in a thoughtful way. But, but let's just have this as a starting point. I love what C.S. Lewis has to say. He has this to say, God doesn't want something from us. He simply wants us. And you, and you might take a little turn on that and say, as we often say at Mercy Road, God does not want your money. He doesn't want something 
from you. He wants something for you. Just like, I don't want my kids' money. I don't need their money. They don't bring that much home, so to speak. But I do want something for them. I want them to grow up to be generous. I want them to own stuff, but not to be owned by stuff. I want them to serve sacrificially and lovingly the Lord, their king that created them, their savior, rather than the allure of money, money and all that it promises. That's a terrible master. We're going to look at a teaching from Jesus. We believe as followers of Christ that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And this is what he has to say on money. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you will despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Some of your older translations will say mammon for money. We'll talk about that in a minute. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, Jesus says, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear in the ancient world. Clothes were really expensive. Food was a day-to-day proposition. It was natural to worry about that stuff. He's saying, don't do that. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then let's skip all the way to uh, verse 31. He kind of circles back around on this worry theme. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans, the word pagan means, in this context, people who are not Jewish. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi speaking to Jews. Pagans would be people who worship multiple gods, have a lot of superstitions going on, do not know the one true God, Yahweh. For the pagans, what? They run after all these things. Food and clothing and security and riches. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be what? Given. Given to you. So Jesus is reminding his disciples, you don't need to spend your life worrying. You need to instead seek God's agenda, his priorities and purpose, and God's going to take care of you. He knows what you need. It's easy to read that, but isn't it hard to live sometimes, especially in a culture that almost sees worry as like a a sport or a pastime and and looks at stuff as something that defines status and will bring us ultimate meaning. So what are we to learn from, from Jesus here? Three things. The first is this, among many, three things. We can only sacrifice sacrificially rather serve how many masters? One. That's what he's saying right off the top. He's saying, look, it's pretty simple. You're going to have a master in life. You can only serve one. Now, as Americans, we're like, what do you mean a master? I don't have a master. We, we ban slavery. You know, in the ancient world, slavery was rampant in every culture. And, and Jesus is speaking to people who understand slavery and servanthood and masters. And the word in Greek is kurios that he's using for master. And it means somebody who has charge over another person by virtue of possession or ownership. So not just your boss. It's like if your boss owned you. <laughs> and, and Jesus is saying in life, it is the case that to be a human being, you're going to have a master, somebody who has that level of authority over you or something. But be careful. Don't try to have two. And specifically, when you try to have the God who made you as your master, and at the very same time, money, it's not going to work. You're going to have divided loyalties. You're going to start to love one of them and kind of despise the other. And what if 
the one you love is the, the money. And that word for money, as I said, is translated mammon in some translations. That's kind of a funny translation in the early ones because the Greek word for, that Jesus is using is mammon. And mammon in English doesn't have quite an equivalent, so the translators early on just said, well, let's just call it mammon because that's the Greek word. There's plenty of other words in Greek for money, like coins and cash and currency and all that. He uses mammon specifically because it means something like independently wealthy and rich, like more than you need, lavish amounts of cash that like redefine your whole life. He said, if that is your goal, you'll never have enough. You'll start to potentially despise the source of every good thing, the creator of your life. No matter how many trains, Thomas, the trains you accumulate, you'll always want more. You'll never feel like you have enough. I think most of us relate to this. Have you ever had two bosses? Have you ever been in an org chart at work where you weren't really sure who you reported to? Maybe you reported to a few people and one person really kind of wanted this for your working hours. Another person kind of wanted this for your working hours. Sometimes we do this to our kids. It's like mom wants this and dad wants this and you feel divided and it's confusing and Jesus is saying, be clear on this. In life, you're gonna have a master. Choose wisely. And that is the theme of this theory, wise living. Mammon, the pursuit of riches and wealth and more, that's a bleak outlook, friends, when mammon is your master. Because you won't own things, they will own you. And you know this is creeping in when you have something and the thought of lending it out to someone else just sends shivers up your spine. What if? What if they wreck it? What if they're not careful? What if it gets lost? Do you really own that thing anymore? Or does that inanimate object own you? And there's an irony in making stuff your master. Have you ever seen a U-Haul behind a hearse? I haven't. No U-Hauls are trailing behind hearses because you don't take all this stuff with you. It goes back in the box. How many people in this room listening online, when you die physically, you're going to run out of physical life way before you run out of stuff and money in the account? I would say the majority of us. Do you know that if you make $35,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of wealth earners in all of human history? Is this sermon necessary for us? Yes. We can only serve one master. He starts there, and then he moves towards just an astute observation of the human condition. Because of sin and selfishness and the shattering effect that that has on individuals and groups of people, here's the bad news. We tend to stockpile or squander money. Left to our own devices, that's what you do. And that's what I do. And some of you are kind of bilingual. You kind of stockpile and squander. On a Monday, you're concerned with hoarding stuff. And on a Tuesday, you're spending like, like the credit card will never catch up with you, impulse buys. On a Wednesday, 
you wish you could have half of the stuff you bought on a Tuesday just for half what you spent on it because you realize how unfulfilling and unnecessary it was. And then you're hoarding again and stockpiling. And that's really the unfortunate condition that we find ourselves in in the world we live with the inclinations that our ancestors have given to us and that our own choices have, have given to us. We tend to stockpile or squander money. You know, that word mammon, meaning riches or wealth, is a unique choice for Jesus to, to use in this sermon, in this teaching, because he could have just said dollars or money or coins. He could have just said, you can't serve both God and currency. And that's true in the sense that if he had just put that word in there, it would definitely probably mean stockpiling. It would speak to those who are really concerned with security and just having enough, and maybe that's you, or maybe it's the person you're elbowing right now next to you. That's that part of your personality that says, will there be enough? I don't know. I just need more, and I need, if I don't have enough, there, I, I won't feel secure. But he uses mammon because it encompasses the obvious money aspect and the security that money brings, but then mammon saying wealth and riches, that kind of opens the gate for people to have the ability to just squander. You know, there are people on planet Earth that make so much money right now that if they dropped a $100 bill on the ground, it would be unwise for them to stop and take the time to pick up the $100 bill and put it back in their pocket because in the time it took to bend over and pick up a $100 bill, they would have lost 1000 We live in extravagance. We live in a time where you can dial up this little company called Amazon and they can deliver within a day or two whatever you want on your door. That's kind of amazing. And it is wrought with the temptation to have impulse buy after impulse buy after impulse buy. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but be honest, how many of you, how many of us have really felt emotionally just not in a good place, we're bummed out, we're depressed, and we said, you know, if I just make a few online purchases, if I just go to a store and I just, you know, throw caution to the wind and make a few big purchases, I'm going to feel better. I've fallen into that at times. For me, if I'm honest, that I relate to the desire to stockpile and have enough and the temptation at times to squander, to consume, to assume that if I just have more, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied. So we can only sacrifice one master, Jesus says, and, and the options for today's message are the God who made us and loves us and understands us and redeems us and saves us and wants to live forever with us and wants to provide for our needs and not let us be a victim to worry for the rest of our life, or mammon, the pursuit of wealth, riches, security, stockpiling, impulse buys, more and more and more and more stuff and money. One of those masters is very harsh and unforgiving. One of those masters overpromises and underdelivers every single time. And if you doubt this, do a little Googling when you get home on how it's going for those who won the lottery. Highest divorce rate, highest mental illness rate, highest suicidal ideation rate within five years of almost any segment of the population. Yes, we do tend to stockpile and squander. And where does that come from? 
Well, here's kind of the dirty word that we don't like to say because it's a sin, but it's a sin that we can recognize in other people sometimes, but we rarely ever recognize in ourselves. And if we do, we don't admit we have it. It is greed, the G word. Let's, let's define greed for a minute. Can you read this together just to drill this in our head? Because we don't talk about greed much because greed is another person's problem, somebody I don't know, some miserly person that, that, that's over there. It, it, greed never lives here. Let's read it together. Greed is the assumption that it is all for my consumption. Pastor Andy Stanley defines it that way. I love that definition. It's the assumption, and assumptions are different than facts, I'm going to make the assumption that this stool behind me will hold my body weight. It's not a fact yet, because I don't know. I might crumple to the ground. Whew. Good thing my wife made me go on that diet in January. The assumption was okay. I based a decision on it. We make decisions all the time based on intelligent assumptions, but this is not an intelligent assumption to make. It's a false assumption. Greed is the assumption that, gosh, if the paycheck comes in, if I get a bonus, if I win the lottery, a little bit of inheritance money, wow, I sold that on Craigslist for a lot more than I thought. Whoa, sweet tax rebate. Whenever those things come my way, it's for me. It's for what I want to do. It's for me to live on. It's for me to spend. It's for me to save. But it's for me. It's not for me to give. It's not the Lord entrusting something with me to meet a need for somebody else. So I don't need to check in with God on that. It's not for me to expand and grow as a more generous person. It's not for me to invest in the lives of those who are suffering. It's for me. Finding Nemo is the best theological movie when it comes to showing us how D evolution works when greed gets a hold of our heart. The seagulls, anybody tracking with this movie? You remember the flock of seagulls? A little morsel of food, a little fish gets shown, and all these seagulls descend, and they stop and they look at it. And then one of them says, mine? And then the other goes, mine? And then they, just a cacophony of seagulls, mine, 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 and they just fight over this little morsel of food, and that's what greed does to you. If every time you see a $20 bill or a check come in or a rebate or a bonus and the seagull voice starts to kick up, that's not what the Lord wants for you. And be honest with yourself, that's not what you would want for your kids. That's not what you would wish upon anybody you loved or cared for. That's not fully living. That's not living and representing the fact that you're made in the image of the God who gives and gives so lavishly that he would give his own son? Friends, one of my prayers for every person at Mercy Road and anybody on the fringe of Mercy Road that just watches these messages or is blessed by some of the ministry here is that we would not become seagulls who just say, mine, mine. Okay, so we tend to stockpile or squander money. Left to our own devices, we turn into these mine, mine, mine seagulls. Greed is the assumption. It's all for my consumption. That's not how God works it. So where do we go from here? Well, Jesus tells us, and he brings us to this wonderful, short, pithy, powerful verse, Matthew 6, 33. Matthew 6, 33 centers 
us and gives us that ray of hope in the darkness. He said, don't worry about all this stuff right before. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and wear and drink and, oh, my retirement, and what if the car breaks down? And, oh, will there be enough? But seek first, not second, not third, not fourth. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, all the stuff that you need and you're worried about, all that will be taken care of. How? All these things will be given to you as well. Now that's interesting, as well. It's almost like you and me seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness, the right way he wants reality to work, just the act of us making that choice is a gift too because he's saying, when you seek it, also on top of that, I'm gonna give you something else, all the stuff you kind of need financially. Don't miss that. It's like he's saying, the biggest gift is just you seeking my kingdom. And, and anybody who's done that for any amount of time really tried to follow Christ and say, like, give me opportunities to bless other people, to use my gifts, to see your redemption and grace and mercy and power rain down on a broken world. Help me just to participate in that in a way that you've prepared in advance of my birth to do. Anyone who's tasted a little bit of that realizes that this is the gift and that everything else, those are just beans and bullets. When I was in the military, it was interesting. In basic combat training, you were only given a, a certain amount of ammunition to qualify. And the way that the drill sergeants would teach you initially to be a good shot is they would start to reward the better shots with more ammunition. It's almost like if you know what to do with ammo and you know how to use it and you do use it, the drill sergeants would give you more ammo. And there were some soldiers who just, they were so afraid of shooting at the target or missing, they just, they just kept a full clip and they just kind of thought about it. And the irony is they never got more. What if that's how money works? That God's not short on it. God could give you a trillion dollars tomorrow. It'd be no sweat for God. He made the Himalayas with his pinky. Like, he, like really, you think he needs your cash? Get real. What if he just sees money as a tool and he wants you to see it as a tool? And he wants to give you first the gift of participating in his kingdom. Now I get it, we don't get kingdoms because there aren't kings. We live in a democracy. But Jesus' original hearers would have totally understood what he meant. Yeah, kings are the people where when they want something to happen in their sovereign dominion, their flying space, their property, it happens. Their will is done exactly because they're the sovereign. They're the king, the king or the queen. What they say goes. You're a citizen, so you enact the will of the king. And Jesus is saying to people who are really oppressed under a terrible king, the, the Roman emperor, he's saying, the king that is the king of this world, he has a kingdom. And that kingdom is infiltrating all the kingdoms of this world. It's going to be the final kingdom that will last. The kingdom where truth and grace and mercy and forgiveness and joy and peace and redemption and meaning and true pleasure and friendship and everything that is good and right and true and beautiful will last and we'll have the final say. That kingdom is what we need to orient and reorient our whole life around. And that reorientation, that daily pursuit as a representative of that kingdom, that's the gift. 
That is the thing that you're looking for when you spend the credit card, when you dream of the second home, when you drool over the car that you've always wanted and can't afford, when you look at your full bank account, more full than you need, and it makes you feel safe, but not quite as safe as you want to feel, the thing you're reaching for is participating in God's kingdom, coming to earth. And when you do that, the irony is God's going to give you what you need. And you'll own stuff. And you'll have money. But your stuff won't own you. And your money won't have you. And you'll be free. Because you'll be serving the one master who knows you inside and out, who who sees all your imperfections and mine, who loves you to the bottom, who loves you to the top, who has a plan for your life, who doesn't just see who you are now on the little journey of becoming truly generous, but sees the end product and chooses to see the perfect life, death, and resurrection, the perfect character of Jesus Christ when he looks in your face and loves you and honors you with the same ferocity that he loves and honors the perfect son. So how do we live out this pursuit of the kingdom of living first? Well, well, here's a practical way. Give, save, live. Give, save, live. These large jars are representational of uh, three mason jars that I keep in every one of my kids' bedrooms. My wife and I, years ago, bought these mason jars, and we labeled them in that order, give, save, and live. And when they get a dollar, it's kind of like a little math lesson for them, too. Um, We say, hey, put a dime in the give jar, 10%. Not because God says, you have to give 10%, or I won't love you. It's not in the Bible. Because we're just teaching them to prioritize generosity first. And, And that's just a good starting point for them. So 10% there in the give, and then in the save, put another dime. 10%, because your future is calling, and it it will need some money. And then in the live, you get to put the eight dimes. And when you want to buy a video game or help, you know, buy a meal with your buddies or whatever, gosh, you you get to spend that out of the live. But you also get to pray, Clark. You also get to listen to the Holy Spirit, Isaac. You also get to have the joy of providing needs for those who are hurting. Adeline, when you empty that give jar and you creatively and generously and secretively meet the needs that God has placed around you. And we challenge them. What if you put two dimes in the give jar? And you know, we're all different. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. One of my kids has a hard time with that. Two dimes? Slow down. (laughs) You seen what a Lego set costs lately, Dad? You better up the allowance if you want me to start putting multiple dimes in the give jar. I say, I'm not telling you. I'm just inviting you. Well, I'm going to invite you to ask my younger brother about that. So, you know, the other kid, he almost is just so generous that he'd put like nine in the give jar. And you kind of got to pull him back and be like, well, you do have to save some. And, you know, in this world, you do have to buy things. So, So, you know, we all come from different backgrounds and personalities but the order matters. And when we give, save, live in that order, that helps us put the kingdom of God first. The problem, my friends, is this. Without intentional living, careful, wise guardrails in your life, this is what 
your finances will look like. You will live first. You will put stuff in there. If you have any leftover, you will save some. And a lot of times you won't even do that. And then you'll give what is left over. You know, I read an interesting stat that like the average American in one year spends something like, like over two hours accumulatively staring in an open fridge. We just open the fridge and you're just like, uh-huh. I do this sometimes. Like, I'm not even hungry. I'm like, ah, string cheese, apples, ugh, leftovers. I wonder if that would make me sick. That's been in there for like four weeks. Some leftovers are good. Most of them aren't. Does it make sense that the God who granted us everything that we hold dear, that is the giver of every good thing, is the recipient of our leftovers? He doesn't need your money. He doesn't want something from you. He wants you. He wants something for you. And when we shift it, when we shift the order to say, you know what, God, I'm going to give you my first. I'm going to intentionally decide ahead of time what I'm going to give. The first priority will be what I give to my local church, to kingdom projects around me, that does something to our heart. It, it's almost like a vaccine against the virus of greed. And by the way, we're all infected. Greed is so hard because you can always look at somebody more greedy than you. And you can say, well, yeah, I'm a stockpiler, but she's a hoarder. I mean, she could go on that, on that show on TLC. So I'm not that bad. Or, I mean, yeah, I made a few impulse buys, and yeah, half the stuff I buy, I wish I had even a third of what I paid for it because it was worthless within 10 minutes. But that guy, he is an impulse buyer. I tell you what, man, that guy, he's like Scrooge McDuck over there in his big swimming pool of cash, and then he's just buying stuff left and right. They're the greedy one. I'm not greedy. You can't see greed in the mirror. Here's how we vaccinate against greed you switch the order. You say, I'm going to decide ahead of time what to give. Whatever percentage it is. And then I'm going, whatever percentage it is, ahead of time, going to decide what I'm going to save. And then I'm going to live on the rest. You know, it's important to really make this practical in this series on guardrails. Because how do you build guardrails if you don't have any practical application. So here are some ideas, but as I share them with you, I have no right to tell you what your guardrails are. It's your life. I don't know your finances. I don't know your personal habits and hurts and, and hang-ups and temptations and blind zones. But I do know this, you don't want to drive off the cliff financially, and I don't want to see that either. And I do know this, if you live in this culture that serves mammon, that serves money so quickly and readily without putting up guardrails, you're going to develop some very significant regrets. So here are some examples to get us thinking. The first we've, we've covered, give, save, live, instead of live, save, give. That would just be an obvious example. Switch the order. And, and to be more specific, how about this? Be a priority percentage giver and use a budget to do that. You know, a lot of people are very hung up on this 10% thing. In the Old Testament, it was a very clear command to give a tithe. 
And I've done a lot of deep dives on the tithe. And we write these messages together, me and my buddy Tom, and he is a language scholar. <laughs> and, and, and we both have come to the conclusion in the New Testament, followers of Christ are not commanded to give 10%. Why? Because the model is the cross, my friends. The model is sacrificial love. The word in the scripture that we just read for to be devoted to one of your masters, to love one of your masters, it's agape. It's one of the, the Greek words for love. Agape is sacrificial love. You're either going to sacrificially be devoted to wealth and riches and security and impulse buys, or you're going to be sacrificially devoted to God and his priorities and kingdoms. And, and this hurt when I first heard it, when someone told me this, but someone said this years ago, and they said, Mike, it seems like you think you're generous, and I'm sure you are, but don't confuse generosity with sacrificial giving. If it doesn't pinch you regarding like what you drive a little bit, the house you live in, the furniture you buy a little bit, if it doesn't make a little bit of a demand on the restaurants you frequent and how often you frequent them and your travel plans, the electronics you buy and how often you upgrade your phone, if none of these categories are ever pinched at all because of your giving behavior, you may be giving a lot of money but you're not being sacrificially generous by the definition of sacrifice. And I said, wow, you're right. That is why my wife and I give more than 10% to this church because God's been good to us. Part of that is someone talked us into going through Financial Peace University years ago. And that's why she can stay home and be an at-home mom and homeschool our kids during this pandemic, even though she got laid off from a 10-hour job at the Minnesota Orchestra, we're okay because we have learned to budget and live within our means, and we have seen that when we give generously and sacrificially, God provides more than we ever thought we needed. Whether it's 1%, 2%, 3%, 10%, 40%, and for some of you, you make enough where 10% isn't even going to come close to sacrificial giving, just be a priority percentage giver. And if you're worried about this church having an angle because you grew up in a weird religious environment where everyone had an angle and they had that long pole with the basket attached and they'd poke you in the sternum during giving and come on, come on, I know you got another dollar in there. If that's your hangup, give somewhere else and keep coming here and we'll love and serve you and it's okay. I have no idea. Pastor Chad has no idea what anybody gives. We like it that way. But I'll tell you this. This church five years ago was so in debt that we had to decide which bill to pay every month. We were barely hanging on. And I believe that we are far from perfect and we are on a journey because we have consistently surrendered our desires, our will to seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness and doing the best we can to follow God where he leads us. He has provided for us and more than provided, church. We are in a very, very, very healthy financial spot. We give a percentage away to those who are hurting and missions that most churches would only dream of giving. And so I'm able to say, contrary probably to the wishes of the board, that if you have a hang-up, we just so want you to experience the generosity lifestyle that God made you to experience. Go give it somewhere else. Keep coming here. It's okay. Just give. Another guardrail would be to give God your first. And you can train yourself in non-monetary ways. You could start, hey, for the next week, I'm going to wake up in the first five minutes of the day. I'm going to give God that. My wife and I give in the first of the month. We auto pay to this church and to the other ministries we support. Why? 
Are we superstitious? No, it's just a, a guardrail that reminds us that it's the first thing we give. I mean, we, we don't even get paid on the first of the month, but that's okay. It's just reminding our hearts that this is what we give. Have real financial accountability. Early in our marriage, my wife and I decided we will not spend a certain amount of money without telling each other. And anything we spend can be talked about. There's no off-limit spending. And, you know, early on, we were broke, so it was like 20 bucks. That was a big deal to us. Can't spend $20 without getting the okay. And then it was 50, and now it's 100. And that's an interesting guardrail, not just for finances, but gosh, wouldn't it be kind of hard to have an affair if you couldn't spend $101 without your spouse knowing? It'd be pretty hard to get addicted to something. There's a lot of benefits of that guardrail. I would recommend if you're not married, that's okay. God will provide and likely has already provided somebody who you trust and who is wise in your life. Walk with the wise and become wise. A companion of fools suffers harm. A friend is likely closer than you think who would love to provide that type of accountability. Have financial accountability. Don't hoard, but have an emergency fund. So Friday night, I got back from ice fishing with some veterans and a group of people. And Again, if you want to use the ice house, talk to me. We want to see that used on Crystal Lake. But I was in high spirits, and I get home, and we found out that in the basement, the sewage backed up from the city. So one inch of sewage. And talk about the importance of having godly friends. My good friend Josh came over with a shop vac, and we were up till darn near two in the morning, and it was a crappy situation. (laughs) No pun intended. And now we had to pull all the carpet out, and it's a whole thing. But here's what's cool. Even though that was stressful for me, What didn't enter my mind was debilitating worry. That's not the stress. The main stressor for me was the smell so bad, I kind of want to throw up. And that's stressful, but that goes away with air purifiers and things like that. Worry about how am I going to pay for this? Because maybe the insurance will cover, or maybe not. That's not a thing for us. Why? Because ministry pays so well? Come on. I mean, I'm compensated fine and adequately. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying we have an emergency fund. That's a guardrail in our life. You should have one too. That allows you to keep going and keep being about the business that the Lord has for you. But don't confuse an emergency fund with hoarding. Some of you, your emergency fund assumes that like for the next 20 years, you'll never get any income. Well, that, that's quite an emergency fund, right? So we can cover the basement, whatever is needed. And maybe that should be a guardrail for you. How about this one? Work on a plan to get out of debt gradually. If you're in debt, we believe at this church, it honors God when we work hard to get out of debt when we can and as we can. And it doesn't happen overnight. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Colossia, Colossians, and he says in the letter, um, Get busy killing off the sin in your life. That's kind of my paraphrase. And the Greek word for that is morteo, put to death your earthly desires, the sin that lurks in you. Morteo is where we get the English word mortgage. It means killing off something by increments or degrees. You pay your mortgage monthly. You're killing off your mortgage. That's how debt should work too. And what would keep you from establishing a guardrail of saying, you know, I'm going to start killing off the debt that is accumulating in my life at a faster rate. You're not going to be able to pay it off tomorrow, but you might be able to pay it off faster than you think. Our staff has all gone through Financial Peace University. I'm so proud of Ari and Bree. Ari's our worship pastor. 
and, and he, they went through that, and man, are they just eliminating their debt at a rapid pace. And if you want to see somebody, a couple who, who has some life in their, their, their relationship because of that, even though it's hard work, go talk to them about how awesome it feels to put a guardrail in your life that eliminates the debt in your life. Generously finance kingdom people and projects. That's another idea. You know, so we give a certain percentage to the church and then, you know, some missionaries, but we also have kind of a fun giving amount in our budget. So like if God puts on Erica's heart, we should really give to a family who's in need or, you know, I've come to have a relationship with a guy who's doing life in prison and I like to put money on his card so he can buy like sketchbooks and stuff. And that's not like a big decision for me where I have to, oh, where's that going to come from? Because I've already decided ahead of time there's an account with a set amount of money and it's got to get spent, Mike. So keep your radar up for ways to bless people. And it doesn't have to be massive if you're getting out of debt and you don't have a huge, huge income, but don't miss out on the joy of financing kingdom people and kingdom projects. You're missing out on one of the best pleasures in life. And it's a guardrail you can set up. How about this? Budget for what you underspend and overspend. My wife loves to travel. I travel a lot in the U.S. Army and not to wonderful places for the most part. And so I'm kind of over-traveling. I'm a bit of a homebody. Although with the sewage smell, sounds better. But, but... Early in our marriage, I saw this as an issue, and she saw it as an issue because it just was painful for me to spend the money it took to travel. To me, it's not what I wanted to spend money on, but I knew that was important to her and for our marriage, so we put a guardrail. What was the guardrail? Well, we auto-deducted a a set, agreed-upon amount to go into a travel fund, and that would accumulate, and we, we negotiated what that would be, and we were prayerful about that, and I compromised a little bit, and she compromised, and then it became extremely easy for me to spend that on travel because it's budgeted. But left to our own devices, because I would probably whine about it, we would underspend on that. And then there's the categories that we overspend. I spend too much on food, because I like to eat. Some of you, if you looked at your fast food receipts, you'd be like, whoa. I could be like Warren Buffett by now if I would have invested that stuff, man. You're like 10,000 Big Macs in, right? Am I wrong? And you're my people, by the way. Anyways. I have, to, I have to roll that back a little bit. So we budget for that. That's a guardrail. If I go over on my fast food budget, there's consequences beyond the fact that I have to buy new pants, right? We have to have a conversation, my wife and I. That's a guardrail. Lastly, once you have given and saved in that order, here's a guardrail. Don't forget to live. There's this really curious part in De- Deuteronomy in the Old Testament And it's peppered with all this legalistic, you have to do this, you can't do this, have this religious festival, and this marks your atonement. And it's just a bunch of obligations. It's kind of a bummer to read. Most of you probably have never read it because it's just hard to get through. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's like, oh yeah, and by the way, every interval, have a huge party, feast. And you're like, really? It's like, yeah, because God invented that and pleasure and friendship and merriment. And so don't forget to live. Give, save, and really live. Friends, let's not become seagulls that just say, mine, mine, mine. Let's not assume that God wants our money or he wants something from us. Let's consider the possibility that God wants something for us. 
And even more, he wants us. He wants our heart. And let's use every dollar that passes through our fingers to pursue his kingdom. Let's pray. God, we ask the question, do we have money? Does money have us? I ask that every person over time that calls Mercy Road home would come to say, we have money. Money does not have us. We have stuff. Stuff does not own us. Thank you that you gave, Lord. You love the world so much that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. You are the source and the model of pure generosity. Thank you that you made us in your design, in your image, replicas of your character. Help us to live into that true generosity. For anyone who is experiencing financial hardship, food insecurity, immense debilitating worry over finances, Lord, would you just calm their spirits, Lord. Help us to continue to be a church that sees needs and meets needs, that shows great financial mercy to those who are in need and is quick to run to the opportunities to invest in your kingdom people and projects as you present them. We lastly ask that your Holy Spirit would intercede on our behalf as individuals that comprise Mercy Road Church. Would you please ask? Well, put it this way. We ask, Lord, what you would ask if we had your perfect perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.